Greetings, Walden faculty, and to others tuning in to the My Faculty Podcast CFE playlist. You're in for a treat today as you hear from Dr. Amin Esfari and his experiences with and research on Islamophobia as it relates to public policy and prejudice. Dr. Esfari provided such a great talk on this topic, so be sure to set time to listen to the entire audio. To give you a little background about Dr. Esfari, he's a contributing faculty member in the School of Public Policy and Administration. He's an active researcher examining issues ranging from institutionalized prejudice and public policy responses with emphasis on policing to broader issues of intergroup conflict in the U.S. His recent publications include book chapters and journal articles reflecting his varied interests in these topics. Dr. Esfari is currently co-authoring a book on the antecedents of mass shootings aimed at Jewish and Muslim communities, specifically the role of conspiracy theories. Now, let's cut to the recording. I want to take this time to talk about a topic that's near and dear to my heart and uh, has been the focus of my research for a couple of years now. It started uh, when I was a graduate student at Walden and I was contemplating a research topic for a dissertation um, and an incident took place that really uh, cemented my research interest. It was with a family relative. It made the headlines uh, nationally and, in fact, around the world. My cousin, Dia Barakat, had, um, was a dental student at UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, he was married to um, uh, a young girl that uh, he had uh, sort of fallen in love with, and uh, they met uh, at North Carolina State University. And then he decided to uh, go to dental school. She was also accepted later to dental school. Um, one day, her, her and her sister uh, were at the apartment uh, with Dia. And their neighbor came over and um, was very upset. Uh, knocked at the door. Uh, they had interacted with him before. Uh, and um, long story short, he ended up murdering all three of them, apparently uh, what the, the police department there locally said was initially over a parking lot dispute. Later on, that was revised, of course. Uh, certainly, when there was a lot of uh, uh, contentious uh, arguing back and forth uh, between law enforcement and the local Muslim community. That, in fact, uh, it wasn't a parking dispute, but motivated by a hate crime, given the posts on the social media, given the previous confrontations between the perpetrator and my cousin and his uh, uh, wife. So uh, this uh, became somewhat interesting as an academic uh, topic, uh, more so than merely a personal matter. I was curious to know how is it that a rational person uh, or a seemingly rational person would become so uh, vitriolic, so mean, uh, so angry uh, at a person's physical depiction, at what they look like that they would be willing to kill. Uh, and so I started looking uh, specifically at Islamophobia, but my interest really has expanded to group dynamics, uh, whether that's racial uh, differences, uh, even uh, in terms of uh, the, the current uh, discussion between law enforcement in the US and minority groups. I, I also happen to teach uh, at a criminal justice department, so that's Another interest of mine is how 
the representation of groups in multicultural societies uh, leads to some animus, uh, some feeling of threat uh, between people and makes seemingly rational individuals act in very irrational uh, and sometimes very violent ways. But the current study of mine that I'm un undertaking with a colleague looks at uh, mass shooters, uh, uh, specifically those mass shooters who have targeted the synagogues and mosques. Uh, and what, I'm, what I'd like to talk about is really how prejudice forms, uh, that is to say, what are the psychological mechanisms that, that, uh, that inflame prejudice, uh, very broadly speaking, and certainly within the Islamophobic context. And then I also want to talk about what are the functions of prejudice. So there's two distinct uh, ways that we, we look at this. The first is how uh, prejudice forms. There was a great book in 1954 written by Gordon Alport. It was the seminar on prejudice. It was called, in fact, The Nature of Prejudice, in which he tries to elucidate for us uh, uh, what are the mechanisms that work uh, in the psyche? Uh, how does prejudice uh, operate? And he argues for us quite convincingly uh, at a time when he was trying to explain how Germans were able to transform themselves or were transformed rather from uh, quote-unquote normal persons to Nazis. So he says that prejudice functions on stereotypes. It lives off of stereotypes. Uh, we in, in multicultural societies come into contact with various groups and as such there's always power dynamics there between groups. Uh, majority groups seek to exclude minority groups and that's not just a, a, a majority and a minority based on race. It could be even socioeconomics. So the minority group um, is excluded for multiple reasons. It's excluded, for example, to delineate between the majority group's uh, moral position, their, 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 their superior position in society, their, their political pa power, and so on. So if we consider, for example, the Irish uh, of the, of the early, early 20th century that were excluded uh, and seen as the criminal and deviant element by the Protestant uh, movement here, uh, that would be one example, right? So phenotypically, both of them are white. Uh, that is the large uh, majority uh, Protestant population was generally white, excluding another phenotypically, simi phenotypically similar group, uh, the, the, the Catholics that were coming over, whether they were Irish, Scottish, etc. Uh, because they were deemed a threat to their uh, to the Protestants' economic position and their 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 grip on uh, political power and so forth. So that's one example. Another example, of course, if we fast forward to the war on drugs of the 1980s, uh, we look at uh, the uh, again a majority white populace, uh, certainly upper middle class, uh, excluding um, African American and uh, Hispanic, and indeed low-income whites uh, from the economic mainstream through criminal justice policies that, that labeled uh, people as felons for consuming a substance that was also consumed by members of the majority group, but punished over a hundred times uh, more severely, right? So that the label of felon would adhere and, and subsequently those people would be killed off civilly. That is, they would lose the right to vote. Uh, they wouldn't be able to sit in on juries. They could be legally discriminated against in housing and so forth what Michelle calls the new Jim Crow in her uh, wonderful book. The same has happened, of course, with Japanese Americans to, an, to another extreme, that is 
uh, the, the placing Japanese uh, uh, individuals in internment camps, not because of anything that they've done, uh, but because of their group affiliation, merely because of their phenotypical features. They look like people that we hate, therefore we can justify doing what, what we're doing. So going back to Gordon Alport, he tells us that these, uh, these psychological functions, uh, the stereotypes, uh, essentially, while well, essentializing an entire group, saying that there's something fundamentally different about these people, and that's easier when the phenotype is different, when they look physically different. It became much harder for us to do that with, say, Catholics, uh, uh, whether they're Irish or, or otherwise, because phenotypically they look very similar to us, i.e. the, 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 the white uh, majority uh, of the United States. So uh, we have to find some other group. And what you do is you ascribe to that group an essence that there's something fundamentally different about them and that they all have it. So you might say that these people are lazy, uh, these people are dangerous, right? And that's part of their essence. And you take that label and you, you essentially paint the entire group with that, uh, with that character trait. And what we do is, even when we come into contact with these individuals, say I work with a Hispanic guy, I, I tend to think that all Hispanics are lazy or whatever uh, other uh, sort of stereotype there might be about Hispanic people. And I work with one Hispanic gentleman and I find that this guy is, uh, you know, has a family of his own. He uh, has kids, they go to piano recital, they engage in all of the activities that I engage in with my family. But that ideally would, would make me uh, overcome my stereotypes about the group. And in fact, they're nuanced individuals with their problems and with their uh, good character traits and so forth. But we have a way of uh, maneuvering around that. We call that cognitive dissonance. So we're able to say, well, this person only is like this. All the other members of his or her group remain the same, that they are endowed with that special feature that I've as ascribed to all of them. And that's, uh, that's one way that uh, these mechanisms function. Uh, another way, of course, is, so we say, um, you know, I have a pit bull running at me. And of course, my first reaction is to run away from this dog because I've heard, even though I may not have had a pit bull, may not have had a dog, I've heard others say that when this animal is running at you, more than likely you're going to get bitten. It may very well be the case that this uh, dog is going to come and show love and compassion and lick you. Uh, and show a lot of affection. But you wouldn't know that because you're using a stereotype, something that you've heard about these animals, you've never necessarily uh, experienced it. And that's going into my Islamophobia piece. Islamophobia is essentially that, the, uh, the argument that it's be precisely because I've never experienced interactions with these people that I'm so afraid of them. I'm simply going by what was told to me vis-a-vis -vis the media, especially post 9-11. And so, I ascribe something to the group and I essentialize it. And th this, th this is all of these people. So he also comes up with a way to ameliorate this, uh, th this psychological tendency, and that's called contact theory, which is, in essence, the, the more contact you make, the more prolonged and meaningful contact. He doesn't argue for mere contact. He doesn't say, well, you meet with someone, you know, you put a Klansman and someone from, uh, the Black Panther Party, and I'm not making a moral equivalence here because I don't think they're morally equivalent uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but let's uh, uh, hypothetically put them at two ends of the spectrum and say, 
that we're going to put them together in a room for five minutes. The expectation is that they're probably going to kill themselves. They're not necessarily, that mere contact isn't going to do anything for them. But if they live together, uh, work together for a prolonged period of time, see the humanity and the complexity of each other, then that's supposed to ameliorate the, the prejudice that they have. That's the idea behind contact theory. Now, moving beyond merely explaining how prejudice functions, right? And this, again, goes to any and all group dynamics, and, and you will see it manifests itself generally in uh, multicultural societies where there's historical animus between various groups, but it doesn't necessarily mean that homogenous societies are any better. Uh, Sigmund Freud referred to this as, um, um, he called it uh, the narcissism of minor group differences. That is to say that you and I can be African-Americans, you and I can be white, uh, we can be of the same age and the same socioeconomic class. We will definitely find something to fight about. So you see, for example, in the Muslim world, they're fighting over theological issues. Although my speculation is that it's, it's really more political what's going on there, this masquerading as religion, but I don't want to digress too, too much. So next we look at the functions of prejudice. Uh, another writer wrote a fantastic book called, well, The Functions of Prejudice. I believe his name was Jack Levin. Uh, and he basically articulates he says he, he uses what, what he calls a functionalist paradigm. That is to say, uh, he looks at prejudice not necessarily in the negative sense. That is to say, the term isn't pejorative in and of itself. He looks at it from uh, how does it function? Does it serve uh, different, group, uh, different groups differently at different times? And he says, well, if we remove the negative uh, the, the association with the term prejudice, then what we, we, we can study it in the following way. He says, uh, borrowing from Robert Merton and others who are functionalists and the, use a, a functionalist social paradigm, they say, look, if you watch television, uh, there are two reasons for why you do this. There's a manifest reason, i.e. something that's overt. You can see why you're watching television. That is to say that you're being entertained. But then there's a, a, a latent reason. And that latent reason is you're being socialized into the group or into the culture uh, that you're, uh, where, you're, where you're located. You're watching that television in the U.S. Uh, a part of your assimilation process is you grow uh, uh, more fond of the, the customs and the traditions, certainly more familiar with those customs and traditions. So you might say uh, to someone in the U.S., hey, go break a leg, right? And, and that has connotations here that it might... Uh, <laughs> might not have elsewhere. And, and that's part of the, 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 the common lingua franca, if you would. And so that's part of the assimilation process. That's the, the subtle nuance. That's, that's, that's the latent uh, reason for why people watch television. The other example is marriage. Marriage is a union between two people uh, and historically has been to recognize that union under the law. But moreover, if you look at the latent reason beyond the, the manifest reason it's because it brings societies closer together it brings groups who are otherwise unknown to each other uh, uh, brings them closer together uh, and formalizes relationships and bonds between them so that's how he looks at prejudice he says prejudice functions in the following way prejudice serves the interests of the majority by delineating uh, 
their moral superiority, their uh, economic superiority, or any other superiority that you want to think of, by deline delineating that line between them and us, members of the out-group and members of the in-group. We are members of the in-group, and these minorities, uh, or minority groups, uh, are members of the out-group. It's, of course, why sociologists look at hate crimes in, very, uh, in, in different ways. Unlike criminologists who study uh, the law and how, how deviance is shaped in that regard, uh, sociologists says, well, no, hate crime is simply a member of a in-group or a dominant group uh, drawing a line in the sand, saying to that member of the out-group, hey, you don't belong here. You've encroached on our circle. Stay back. Right? So that's how hate crime is is, is, is seen through that paradigm. So now we know what the functions are for the majority group. It's to uh, draw distinctions between them and people of the out group. But also uh, it functions to serve the minority group as well. So it has positive functions for the minority group. And I'll give an example after I describe what that means. So now all of a sudden uh, the minority group feels excluded. So how does it, how does it uh, uh, face this exclusion? Well, because it feels threatened, it coalesces. It works together with other groups, right, to strengthen its position in the face of this new exclusion, uh, to challenge it. So it actually wakes them up and allows them to recognize, hey, we're being excluded here on purpose through all these various means, overt or covert, and we need to challenge it, uh, that uh, prejudice. We need to challenge those policies of exclusion. The example I'll give is, of course, very recently, as of 2016, the uh, election of Trump. Uh, we saw in the Muslim community uh, a lot more activism. You know, Muslims have been here, by some estimates, since the time of Christopher Columbus, given that Columbus came from Spain and Spain was... Uh, you know, Muslim for 800 years. Some some scholars speculate that some of the people that came with him on the ship were originally from uh, Muslim families on his ships. So uh, fast forward really to the 1960s. That's uh, 1965. We we lift the law. We lift a ban on immigration and people from uh, these uh, communities, uh, China and Middle East and elsewhere, start to come over and mass migrations begin to happen. And so what you begin to see is uh, really the establishment of Muslim institutions en masse uh, uh, since that time. Well, what those communities tended to do is to be insular. They tended to uh, stay to themselves, open up a mosque, open up a, you know, community centers, uh, and you know shops and things of that nature, the typical immigrant experience, uh, hardworking families and so forth, but they tended to stay insular, stay to themselves, not engage politically. Post 9-11, when we see the overt exclusion, we see a subtle sort of, uh, we see both a fear from the community because they were being targeted by law enforcement, uh, uh, you know, scapegoated in many ways uh, through policy, and this is the public policy piece of my speech. Public policy is important as a tool to challenge, um, to challenge uh, policies of exclusion, to, to, to challenge marginalization. So what they begin to do, uh, certainly the second and third generation of those uh, groups, is to engage civilly more, to come out of their, uh, for lack of a better word, to come out of their hiding places, to come out of their communities, and to go out and to start uh, working for social justice, uh, 
uh, uh, reaching across the aisle and working with African Americans who have been excluded for far longer in this country um, for various reasons uh, than they were and uh, working uh, with the LGBTQ community and others to essentially challenge and confront uh, the overt policies of exclusion. And that was highlighted in 2016. Right, with the 2018 elections, the midterm elections, what we saw is that uh, that form of social activism really manifested itself in uh, and across the aisle, minority groups, be they women, be they members of the LGBTQ community, be they Muslims, they came in to Congress uh, at staggering numbers uh, in the Democratic Party and so forth. That is how uh, uh, prejudice functioned. It functioned to wake them up and it functioned to uh, give them a cause to rally around and to support. And in so doing, of course, they were challenging the policies of exclusion and continue to do so. And so public policy is important. Oftentimes we think of social activism, i.e. Uh, going out into the street and protesting and so forth, and there's definitely a place for that to be done. Though in terms of effectiveness, that rarely addresses systemic uh, prejudice, systemic racism. Uh, so, for example, why the Black Lives Matter movement has been so successful. Historically, for African Americans, uh, protests and civil rights and so forth, with the exception of Martin Luther, have been very sort of um, um, uh, 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 vertical. That is to say, you have a head at the realm, uh, at the helm, excuse me, a person who represents a movement, the problem there is once you take the head out, once they're assassinated, once they're incarcerated, once they're gone, no longer does, uh, does the, the movement survive, generally speaking, right? Uh, what the Black Lives Matter movement has done is it has worked with other groups to, to uh, so social scientists use this notion of neural networks. Essentially, if you look at a neural network, it, uh, think of an octopus and it stretches out its tentacles, working out, the, that's much more difficult to subdue because it, it reaches across various points, geographically and otherwise, and works with other groups to ameliorate and challenge the collateral consequences of multiculturalism, of diversity. So oftentimes when I talk about this at university campuses, this notion of multiculturalism, I ask, hey, what does everybody think multiculturalism looks like? And people always raise their hand inevitably and they give some uh, variation of multiculturalism as being some kumbaya, everybody is in love and everybody works together, etc. some harmonious society. In fact, what multiculturalism often means is it's very uh, 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 divisive because of those group dynamics. Right? So going back to Gordon Alport, look, he said... Uh, the individual psychology that makes someone hate is more than simply stereotypes. Stereotypes function to create the prejudice, right? You begin to exclude and hate others based on those stereotypes. And uh, you also have to consider group dynamics. You also have to consider the personality of the individual. There's a great work by... Um, uh, I forget his name, I'm sure it'll come to me, but he, he talks about um, this notion of an authoritarian personality. Uh, he also did work in the 50s, uh, Theodore Adorno, 
right? Theodore Adorno of the Frankfurt School did work on developing this idea of an authoritarian personality. Authoritarianism, he argues, and any of the listeners are free to go and uh, search uh, Google for this, uh, uh, search for the F scale, F as in Frank, or F as in fascism, rather, because that's what it stands for. And he, he argued that people who took that uh, questionnaire, answered that questionnaire, and which determines essentially their level of uh, conservatism, i.e., uh, and I don't want to associate conservatism with authoritarianism here, but generally speaking, that's, that's the direction we're talking about. So uh, the more authoritarian you become, the more uh, likely you are predisposed to seeing the world or viewing the world in an authoritarian way, a rigid way in which there's an absolute right and an absolute wrong, uh, and so forth. Uh, so uh, that coupled with the stereotypes, coupled now with the problem that we're dealing with, which is mass media, and in fact, beyond mass media, social media, all of these things uh, culminate in a, uh, uh, essentially a perfect storm for prejudice, for uh, tribalism, uh, for uh, the, the exclusion of others, the sense of... Uh, uh, the sense of superiority above others and so forth. That, of course, coupled with the changing global demographics. As you see, we're having a lot of wars all over the world. And in so doing, you're going to see, and of course, not to mention uh, climate change, which is going to lead to more and more mi migration. Uh, so as that happens, uh, you're going to see people, those migrants have to go somewhere. And that's essentially a clash of, and I hate to use this term, uh, from uh, Samuel P. Huntington's Clash of Civilizations, because I disagree with his thesis, but uh, that's an, essentially what's happening. I would say a clash of cultures as opposed to a clash of civilizations. Uh, and, and as America becomes browner and browner, you're seeing this uh, perceived threat. So one of the things I, I talk about in my research is intergroup threat theory, which posits that people are threatened. People are threatened symbolically because there's changes that are happening to the symbolism. Uh, you, you hear the common trope. They're not speaking our language. They're not uh, raising their kids like to, to be Americans. They're not accepting our culture. They're not assimilating, etc. cetera. Um, so that's a symbolic threat. And then the perceived realistic threat, that is, they perceive that there's some realistic harm being done to them, that they, uh, they're costing us uh, money in terms of uh, uh, you know, public services, whether it's uh, healthcare or public education and so forth. So there's this perceived threat from the dominant group. And once that threat happens, it inflames the mechanisms that the dominant group has, the mechanisms of ex exclusion, such as the criminal justice system, such as immigration system, right? We're seeing that sort of live out now and that affects everybody, but it affects people at different levels. Here's the nuance. Essentially, the more you look like uh, the members of the majority group, the less likely you are to suffer. That is to say, this is why uh, anti-African-American exclusion, African-American, Hispanics, and others, has been so prolonged and systemic and deep because these groups look uh, phenotypically different than members of the majority group. And so... I'm not sure if there's a, a, a policy solution there. In fact, there's nothing but a policy solution there um, that we have to address and articulate. Uh, and so uh, 
for students of public policy, for faculty teaching in public policy, uh, I think we have to make public policy more relevant in that way. A lot of students are engaged in activism. Uh, this notion of uh, um, positive social change, positive social change in this regard manifests it itself in uh, public policy, in advocacy, in change. And change is systemic and prolonged. And uh, any student who's a public policy student knows that there's the, the, the policy loop or the policy cycle, which means that you can't expect miracles to happen overnight. These things have to, uh, uh, that cycle has to go through uh, multiple iterations. Uh, policies are implemented, policies are challenged, policies are changed, and policies are once again implemented based on those changes, and the cycle continues. Though I do shy away from the notion, or what I call the myth of a linear progression, the idea that in American society, we're always going to get better, things are always going to get better. Take, for example, the, the current state of affairs politically or otherwise. I mean, we've seen the rise of overt racism, uh, though many people fail to con con consider themselves or simply refuse to consider themselves racists. And some of them actually believe this. I mean, I'm not racist, it's just this has to be a white country, right? Uh, in fact, I ask my students, I say, does racism exist? And sure enough, everybody raises their hand, white, black, or otherwise, and they acknowledge, well, sure, racism exists. My next question is, well, great, well, how many of you are racists? And very few people, if any, ever raise their hand. So somehow racism exists without racists being there to perpetuate it because the lexicon has changed. The mannerisms have changed. It's become not so, not so uh, uh, overt. It's become subtle. Uh, we're hearing terms like uh, dog whistle racism, right? So it's particular words that reach audience members, reach individuals uh, very subtly. And uh, reinforce stereotypes about the group. We heard the, uh, I forget the, where this was, but there was a, a, a white politician referring to a, a rival politician who was uh, African-American. He said, let's not monkey this up. I believe it was in Florida. Right? So these kinds of subtle uh, images portrayed through words are very dangerous. And that's a, that's a new manifestation of racism where it's not very overt. They, they, that person would never say, I'm, an, I'm a racist. Uh, they simply uh, do it quite subtly. And this is, in fact, much more dangerous. And in my view, it would be nicer, really, uh, ideally it would be nicer to have no, no, no racism and so forth, but that's very idealistic and unrealistic, unfortunately. Uh, it would be much nicer to understand who this person I'm dealing with is. What is, what is it about this individual, uh, their ideology and so forth, such that I can address it, such that I can know who I'm talking to and, and talk to them in that, in that way and perhaps overcome it. But this form of uh, prejudice and racism is, is a, a lot more subtle and it's much more dangerous. And, um, and that's why, for example, recently in terms of Islamophobia, there, Islamophobia slash racism in general, there was a project called the PlainViewProject.org which, in which police officers in Philadelphia and in Texas and other places have been caught posting overtly prejudiced racist material on their on their Facebook pages and social media and if your if your listeners will go to that website plainviewproject.org they can see some of the vitriol that's there uh, 
some and of course these officers were fired and and I understand why that has to happen why you have to fire these individuals but my concern is this that if we react to racism in a very punitive way we simply drive it underground to me uh, this is a philosophical discussion not necessarily a practical one because again I understand the pressures faced by administrators and these agencies they can't simply say to somebody okay don't do this again and so forth my idea is that perhaps that officer who just posted anti-Semitic information, you're going to be on, uh, on paid leave for a month, and you're going to go spend time in, with the local Jewish community. You're going to get to know them. Uh, you're going to work with them. You're going to go to their worship services and, and, and interact with them there. You're going to go and cook with them and eat with them and so forth and so on, such that we try to undo the, 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 the false learning and the false images that you've, you've learned. We want you to see the complexity of these individuals and we don't want you to homogenize them and ascribe to them some uh, negative stereotypes. That is more practical uh, from, a, from, a, from, again, a philosophical sense than to simply fire them and subsequently send the message to others, if you want to post this stuff, make sure you don't make it public. And, and that systemic racism continues, but it, it's, it's driven underground. And so... Uh, that's essentially it, and I hope that your listeners will, will will take away a few things from this. They'll take away, hopefully, a better understanding of prejudice and how, and more importantly, that they will consider as they go through the world, and, and uh, whether this is for faculty or for students, that we can't, we can't take the human element out of institutions and policies. Uh, when we talk about in the School of Public Policy and Administration, we often talk about organizational leadership and so forth. We cannot separate uh, basic human uh, mechanisms, uh, whether that's psychology or, or, or biology or, or otherwise, from the functions of our society, from the public policies. Um, our, you know, everybody has this sort of mythical belief in the institutions of government that, oh, we're good because we have a system of checks and balances. Well, that system of checks and balances is only as good as the people who are genuinely concerned about it, who actually operate within it. So the judiciary, the executive, the legislative, if they are staffed by people who are racist, by people who are prejudiced, by people who, 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 who value ideals that are uh, different than the majority, that, that is what most of us in, in a civilized society value, then we're in trouble because those systems of checks and balances uh, aren't written in stone, so to speak. And we're seeing some of that uh, today in the United States. And that's uh, speaking as someone who has come from a, 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 essentially a, a dictatorship, uh, i.e. many of these Middle Eastern countries. I can attest to the fact that there's nothing more valued and precious than, than, than the system of checks and balances, than the idea that we are an institution-based country and not one driven by people alone. And those institutions, uh, to ensure that, that they operate well, we have to ensure that the right people are there. So um, having said that, I hope this uh, was meaningful to you. I hope this is beneficial and um, I will uh, love to hear from any of you if you uh, want to reach out to me. Again, my name is Amin Asfari, and I'm a contributing faculty
We thank Dr. Asfari for sharing his research and experience on this topic and also helping us to broaden our knowledge and understanding of what's going on in the world. Please be sure to check out other episodes on the My Faculty Podcast channel. Until next time.